continuing our study here through the book of Acts. Did you guys get settled in and get your Bibles open? Let's do the smart thing. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning, Lord. Just a beautiful day, wonderful time of worship and fellowship. Thank you for this time and just help us to really know and grow as we go through this lesson. And we just pray you would teach and we would listen through your Holy Spirit in your name. Amen. Okay, if you weren't with us the last couple weeks, we've been kind of talking about this. Last week in Acts chapter 9, we had Saul get saved. And Saul has the name changed here in a couple chapters of Saul into Paul. But we had that great lesson on salvation and what that means. Well, we're going to build on that here today because now we're going to look at the first few years of Paul's life. And we're going to see how he grew as a Christian. Now, this is so important as a believer, is this concept of growing. Growing as a Christian. Now, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes this morning, but this is one of those lessons where we have to stop and say, am I doing these things? Too often I run into this as a pastor. I run into somebody, I talk to somebody, concerned about them, haven't seen them in a while. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Now, we usually just accept that word, fine. I'm doing fine, I'm doing okay. But as a believer, when it comes to spiritual growth, What is your definition of okay and fine, and what is the Bible's definition of okay and fine? Because one thing I've noticed is we have our own definition of doing fine spiritually. And you may not really be growing. Listen, I'm not cheating on my spouse. I'm not going out and getting wasted on Friday nights. I pop into church occasionally. I'll crack my Bible every now and then. I'm doing fine. That's your definition of fine. That's not God's definition of fine. God's definition of fine is much more detailed. And it's not some works-based thing. And by I, when I mean when I say that, it's not some of these things of I do these things and I'm saved. No, I do these things because I am saved and I desire growth. That's the key word today is growth. Growing as a Christian. Don and I were talking earlier this week. And the subject just came up of what the Lord has in store for us. And what would happen if God were going to move us or change or something like that? And I asked her, I said, what would you miss just about our house? And she said, the thing I would miss is on the wall where we marked all the kids' heights. You know, we do it at the beginning of the school year, usually do it at the middle of the school year, and do it at the end of the school year. And so that's what she would miss. So if we move, we have to take a 4 by 8 sheet of drywall with us wherever we go just because it has that on there but it's that visible growth and you can see that you look at the kids and you can go back and you say well you know what i don't really think you've grown much but you look at the marks and it's like wow you've grown as believers there are marks that god has given us to say are you growing and once again it's his definition of growth not our definition of growth Let's jump right into this and see. We're going to backtrack just a little bit. We're going to start in verse 17 where we left off last week. And we're going to pick this up. In verse 17 it says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Paul was literally blinded by the light and Ananias comes in and gets a chance to pray with him, disciple him, be with him. But you see this phrase in verse 17, brother Saul, and you see in verse 19, Saul spent some time with the disciples at Damascus. You see this idea of family. There's six points this morning, all on our growth. First one is, as a believer, we desire fellowship. We desire being part of the family. 
Great passage in Isaiah 50. Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone. Too often we see these solo Christians. And they're doing fine on their own, they think. You know, the really, I don't need church, I'll pop in when I can type of thing. God has designed you to be part of the body, to be part of the flock, to be a family. There is strength in the body. There's also conflict in the body. Unity is important. Since unity is so important, guess what the enemy does? He attacks unity. Jesus specifically prayed in John 17 that we would have unity within the body of Christ. The psalmist wrote, how blessed is it when we dwell together in unity. If the Lord wants us to be united as one, what's the enemy going to do? He's going to do everything he can to attack us, to keep us from being one, to being that family, to desiring that fellowship. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. There's a great passage in here about the importance of coming together as one. Now, we know we need to come together as one. We know that church is important. There's strength in the body. But like we said, there's conflict in the body. Why don't we do it? What keeps us from this? I was making a list, and I wrote down four things that keep us from coming to church. And they all happened as well. The first three started with the letter B. So I thought, well, the fourth one has to also. So I, I forced that one in. So I call it the killer bees. These are the killer bees that keep us from going to church. First one, church is boring. Church is boring. Now, I've been to board church services. I've actually been the head of some church services that have been boring. I understand that. But here's the problem with boring church services. Church is not boring. Church is what you want to take out of it. If you come into the church with an open heart, saying, Lord, speak to me through the worship, speak to me through the message, speak to me through the fellowship, speak to me through a service opportunity, you'll get something out of it. Maybe there's that one worship song that you needed to hear, and that's what blessed you. Maybe during the fellowship break, there's that one person who came over and gave you that hug, shook your hand, said, I'm praying for you. Maybe there's that one point in the message. I was just talking to someone recently, and they were talking about the message. And they were talking about how much uh, their spouse got out of the message. And amen. But then they had to throw this point in. Now, personally, I didn't get anything out of it, but my spouse got something out of it. Now, I understand that. Dawn and I will email back and forth a lot on things. There'll be a message that I like, I'll send to her. There'll be a message she likes, she sends to me. And sometimes the message that she likes, I listen to, and it's like, I, I, I didn't see what she saw. Maybe there's something that I sent her, and she's like, I don't get what you get. It's very personal. But I guarantee if you come in with an open heart saying, Lord, through the worship, through the fellowship, through the teaching, through a service opportunity, there will be something that grows me. Come oh, be open for that. And the Lord speaks. The Bible says that his word is alive and active. So since it's alive and active, it will help you grow. So the first one, boring. The next one, busy. Too busy to come to church. Granted, Sundays can be busy. Some work schedules, Sunday. Kids get sick on Sunday. Things happen on Sunday. We get that. That's why if you look throughout the bulletin, there's so many small group studies that meet throughout the week. To say you can't make it on a Sunday, we'll give you an opportunity to have some type of fellowship throughout the week in some way. Because we never want busy to be an excuse. The third one, bother. When I come to church, I get bothered. There's people there I don't click with. There's people there that I don't really like. 
There's people there that do stuff that bother me. And I'm so bothered, I can't focus on the worship, the message. Okay, you got to get over that. There's people that bother you all over the place. I have come to this conclusion that the Lord allows those people in your life for a reason and a purpose. If you are bothered by somebody, it's usually the Lord's way of saying, let me work on this personality trait. You need to have more love. You need to have more grace. You need to have more mercy. Don't let bothersome people keep you from where the Lord wants you. It is fascinating as a society. One little thing can keep us out of church, but yet we'll get bad service at McDonald's and head back the next day. We've got to be careful about the bother. And my last B, it's a bit forced, is it's beautiful outside. It is. See, it's kind of funny. We talk about this phrase, fair-weather Christians. I don't use that phrase. I use foul-weather Christians. Because if the weather's bad, I'll have nothing else to do. I might as well go to church. You know, if the weather's nice, we'll be out. Now, don't get me wrong. We're getting into this season of, of, of beautiful weather. There's times where you're going to be camping. There's times you're going to have an activity. That is great. Go have fun, fellowship. Be blessed by that. But it goes back to our first point, our second point, I should say, of busy. There's other opportunities throughout the week to desire fellowship. Look here at Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25 of Hebrews 10. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. God has designed us to be a flock, to encourage us, to uplift us. When I see that person flying solo, to be honest, that's a sign of a non growing believer. Steps of growth, you see with Paul, the first step, desiring fellowship and realizing we are a body, we are a family. we got to be careful of those killer bees. Busy, boring, bothered, beautiful. They'll take us away from where the Lord wants us to be. All right, let's move on here. Look at the next thing that happens in verse 18. You see Paul getting baptized. Baptism. The second point, what is the sign of a growing Christian? Is that desire to show the world you are now following Jesus Christ. Baptism. Baptism is just an outward sign of an inward change. You have been changed inwardly by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and now outwardly you want to show the world that you're now committed to Christ. It's that outward sign of an inward change. We did a baptism service about a month ago, and we've already had more people come up and say, I'd like to get baptized. We're going to start planning another baptism service. So if you want to get baptized, come see us. It's one of the most fun things that we do out here. It's a wonderful thing. What does it mean and represent? You are born again and saved. So what this means is this. You go into the water. That water represents being cleansed. As you go into the water, you go down in the water, you're submerged. That represents dying, going to the grave. You come out of the water, that shows representing a newness, coming out of the grave, being born again. And Pastor Rich always throws this. You look like a drowned rat, which teaches you humbleness. And your walk with Christ. But there's a beautiful thing of baptism. You go in the water. We say we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You go in the water. You come out. Everybody claps. Everybody cheers. That's a wonderful thing. It's an outward sign of an inward change. It's a way to show the world, I'm a Christian. Do you realize Paul getting baptized is a huge thing? He's publicly showing the world his commitment to Christ, to Jesus Christ the person he tried to persecute. We did a baptism service a few years ago. It was over at the YMCA. And it was just Rich, me, and another guy. And it was always a fascinating one. It's one of my favorite baptisms we ever did. It was a guy that really wanted to get baptized, didn't work out schedule-wise to do a big one. So he said, hey, we're just going to pop over to the Y. 
and baptize you. So here's Rich, me and this other guy. We just walk out of the locker room. We go into the water. Everybody's swimming, doing their things. We go in the water, and we just say we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize you, bring you up. And it was fascinating because people stopped swimming. They stopped doing their things, and they just stared. That's probably the closest we've ever come to what baptism is really supposed to be like. Because when they got baptized during Bible times, they would go down to the river where everybody was working and doing things. And why are those guys walking into the water? Why are they walking in into the pool, three grown men in the YMCA, and now they're dunking this guy? What a neat picture of what it's supposed to be. I just have to make this clear. Baptism is not what saves you. It's what you do because you are saved. It's a way to show the world who you are. You know, I, I'm a big Braves fan. You guys know this. And I got some Braves jerseys at home. If I put those Braves jerseys on, I'm not part of the team. I may think I'm part of the team, but no one's calling me to pitch. and They're not. But by me putting that uniform on, I'm saying this is where my allegiance is when it comes to a baseball team. See, by getting baptized, it doesn't make you part of the team. It's what you do because you are a fan of Christ. And you want the world to know where you stand on that. So we're going to be doing another one, I think, here. So and this always pops up. I got baptized as a baby. Should I be baptized as an adult? I got baptized years ago. I fell away from the faith. Should I be rebaptized? If you have any questions about that, just come see us. And keep your eyes and ears open here. We're going to start hopefully getting a date around maybe and get something set up. But Paul, wanting to get baptized. First point of a growing Christian, desiring fellowship. The second point, wants to show the world. That he is now a follower of Christ. Verse 20. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Paul started preaching, started proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Part of a growing Christian is you want to boldly proclaim what Jesus has done for you so that way other people know it as well. You've been so touched by the gospel that you want other people to do it. And this phrase boldly is repeated again and again and again. This idea in verse 27 of proclaiming boldly. Verse 29, some of your translations say fearlessly. We want to get out there and do it. Why don't we do that more? We have the most important news that the world has ever heard. Why don't we do it? I just wrote down a few excuses. I don't know what to say. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or lastly, I'm scared. Let's just talk about those. Don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to be scared. Let me just sum this up very clearly. You're not that important. You're not. Your words can't keep someone out of heaven. The only thing that can keep someone out of heaven is if they choose to purposely reject Jesus Christ. But what happens if I say the wrong thing? What what, what happens if I do that? The Holy Spirit is bigger than your mistakes. I mean, can you imagine God up in heaven saying, I really want that one saved, but James said the wrong thing. This person now is now going to go to hell forever because James said Galatians 4.22 instead of Galatians 5.22. No. Okay, well, that's a silly little verse. What happens if you say something completely, utterly wrong? 
I've said something completely wrong. I remember I was a brand new believer. I was so excited about Christ. Anybody I ran into, I was going to tell them about Jesus. So somebody came up to me, and they were talking to about the Lord, and they started talking about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the law. They said, so, so this law stuff, can someone be saved by following the law? My response, well, of course they can. I had a brother with me that was more mature in the faith and just gently said, uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> I said the wrong thing. You know what? You're going to say the wrong thing. There's going to be times where someone's going to come up to you and ask you a question, and, and you don't know the answer. You know what the best thing to say is? I don't know the answer. I'll look that up and get back to you. Can I call you? Can I text you? Can I email you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? You're not that important. Your words can't keep someone out of heaven. The Holy Spirit is bigger than your mistakes. If you sit here silently out of fear of saying the wrong thing, I don't know what I'm going to say, you're completely misunderstanding. Because we're supposed to boldly preach and proclaim what Christ has done for us. You will run into somebody who will ask you questions you can't answer. You will run into somebody who will take you down a path that you don't really know for sure. And at that point, you just need to say, you know what, this is what I do know. I do know that God is good. I do know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Those other things you're talking about, let me look those things up and get back to you. And do it. And do it. Because then you get a chance to talk again. We, as Christians, have become the most timid people in the world. For having God on our side, we are scared little rabbits sometimes. We have lost that boldness of proclaiming Christ. It happens to all of us. I had a situation that just happened last Sunday. Last Sunday, I had two kids with me. We went up to the gas station after church uh, to get fuel. And there's a guy just beside me. And so I pull in, and I get fuel. He goes, hey, would you mind after you get done filling up, would you give me a jump? Oh, yeah, no problem. So pull over there after I get done and try to jump. It's not working. It's not working. And it's kind of going on, and then someone else popped in. It was one of those things where people see you doing this, and they just everybody has an opinion. So the one said, well, you know what? You probably need to let it run for at least 10 minutes. So I said, okay, fine. So I said to the boys, let's go in and get something to eat. We'll come back. So we're just kind of standing there. You know, I find out where he lives. find out he lives in Hamler. find out exactly where he lives. It kind of sounds stalkish, but I know, I, I know where he lives. Um, how long has he had the car? How much he paid for the car? Know everything about it. So we're sitting here and trying to get this to start. And, you know, if I don't know what I'm doing in life, my big thing is, let's just pray about it. I mean, the boys come up and, Dad, I lost this. Let's just pray about it. So I'm thinking, let's just pray about it. So I prayed silently with myself. Still nothing. Finally, I I asked the guy, I said, you know, we're standing there. And I said, are you a Christian? And he goes, yeah. I said, okay, well, then let's pray about this together. So we prayed together. And eventually the thing started, and I got a chance to tell him, you know, sometimes the Lord doesn't answer prayers in the way we think. But here I am, pastor. I got the title. I, I've been saved now for over 20 years. I've been a pastor for over 14 years. This is what I do. And I still had that moment of pray with him. Why just pray silently? No, pray with him. So in the middle of the gas station, I put my arm around him, and we just prayed right there for the Lord to start his vehicle. Now, I understand the whole don't know, say the wrong thing, scared. But I see all these passages of saying, let's just boldly proclaim Christ. Listen, if we have the answer and the world is dying, why are we hiding that answer? Let's just get out there and do that. Because you know what? 
It comes to the next point here. Disciples create more disciples. That's our fourth point. First point was desire fellowship. Second point is we show the world we're saved. Third point was we preach boldly. The fourth point is disciples create more disciples. This is the natural reaction to being saved. That if I am saved, that there's a desire in me to see other people get saved. Please go with me to Matthew 28. We're going to stay in Matthew here for a little bit. Matthew 28. Remember, we've been talking about this idea of discipleship for the last two weeks. Disciple means follower of a teacher. So I choose to follow the teachings of Jesus. So I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. The other thing that a disciple does, the disciple is so impacted by the teachings of his teacher, he wants to bring more people into following that teacher. So as a disciple of Jesus, I want to bring more people in to knowing Jesus Christ. Look here at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we talked about this last week, not to step on toes, but we need to ask, verse 19, when's the last time you made a disciple? Verse 19, when's the last time you baptized somebody? Verse 20, when's the last time you taught somebody everything that Jesus said? That's what we're called to do. We are a disciple... So we go make more disciples. We, we have lost this concept in church. This concept in church has become this idea. Of we just all show up on Sunday, sing some songs, we're happy, we go home. No. You come to church to be trained, to be equipped, to be taught, to be encouraged, to be fed, to be blessed, to give you an opportunity to serve, and then you go out and make disciples. I'm not trying to pick on anybody when I say this, but I've heard pastors say this before. They'll look out over the church, and they'll say, hey, we have 300 seats set up. Set up. I'm not good at English. We have 300 seats. I see 25 seats empty. Next week, I want you all to bring a friend. Listen, I don't care if you bring a friend next week or not. Go make disciples this week. That's what matters. Go make disciples. This week, make disciples. Teach them. Baptize them. That's what we're called to do. And one of the results of being a follower of Christ is you want more people to follow Christ. So Paul went and made disciples because he was a disciple. Now, this is not something that we create on our own. This is the Holy Spirit guiding and leading and opening a door. You know all that. But there is a desire to see more people come to know Christ. Jump back. Oh, stay in Acts. Go to Matthew 13, please. Matthew 13. First point was we desire fellowship. Second point, we want to show the world we're saved. Third point was we preach boldly. Fourth point is disciples create more disciples. Fifth point is a Christian grows. There is this phrase here in verse 22 of Acts 9, Saul increased all the more in strength. Saul grew in his relationship with Christ. I think I mentioned this earlier at the beginning of the message. Too often as Christians, we hit this level and we stop. I call it plateau Christianity. It's not that we're doing anything wrong. We just kind of quit growing. I mean, the marriage is in good shape. The witness is in good shape. Spiritual life is in good shape. We just kind of stop. I don't see that in the Bible. In, In the Bible, I see a constant growing to be more like Christ in all that we say and all that we do. I have no Christians that are at the same spiritual level, and they've been that same spiritual level for years. I think it's time for a growth spurt. 
that were growing. Paul increased in wisdom and strength in the Lord. There was a noticeable change in who he was. And I think we've lost that. We miss that sometimes as a church. We miss that sometimes as individuals. It kind of goes back to our first point. We look around and I see other Christians. I'm doing better than them. Okay, but are you personally growing? What is your standard of your doing okay? Is your standard the standard of the world or is your standard the standard of the Bible? Because the standard of the Bible is every day is a day to grow in Christ. To grow closer to your spouse if you're married. To impact your kids more for Christ. To be a better witness. To learn more of the Bible. To do these things. Not because it saves me, but because I am saved. Listen to this passage. This is out of 1 Timothy 4. It says, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Is your progress evident to all? I mean, if somebody who knows you deeply, I, I do this, love this study. It's called Measure of a Man. And I like to do it one-on-one with guys. And one of the points that come out of this is at the end of some of the chapters, it says, go up to those people who know you the most, the best, that will be honest with you, and ask them these questions. What would happen if you'd go up to somebody who's completely honest with you, Hey, you've known me for years. Have you seen any growth in me in the last few years? I mean, just ask yourself that. Is your progress evident to all? Can people stop and say, well, I've really seen you mature in Jesus Christ. I've really seen you mature. Because just as the marks on the wall with my kids, it's easy to see them physically grow. The Bible is trying to tell me we should see you spiritually grow just as well. Paul grew in the Lord. He just didn't get saved and say the same. He grew in the Lord. And I think sometimes as Christians, we reach a point where we're content where we're at. I mean, spouse and I aren't yelling and screaming like we used to. I'm not going out and getting wasted. I mean, I read the Bible more than I did. I I go to church fairly regularly. I'm even serving in the back every now and then. I'm good. No. We want to grow. Look here at Matthew 13. Parable of the sower and the seed. Rich and I talk out here a lot how this parable explains everything. Everything. Verse 3, Behold, a sower went out to sow, Matthew 13, verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell in stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Four groups of seed. Very simple parable here. And, and, you know, imagine if we just all go outside right now, we'd all have this handful of seed. And we'd go out and we'd throw some seed on the driveway, we'd throw some seed on the carport, we'd throw some seed in the field, and we'd throw some seed over here in the grass area. Something different's going to happen. Now, if you'd throw seed on the carport, it's not going to grow. I don't care how much you water it, I don't care how much you fertilize it, I don't care how much sun you give it. It's not going to grow. Do you ever realize sometimes, and I know some of you may disagree with this statement, do you ever realize sometimes as Christians how much time we waste with seeds on the carport? We want them to know Jesus so bad. Okay, they don't want to know Jesus so bad. Does that mean we give up? No, we don't give up, but we realize that carport's not time to plant that carport right now. Let's go someplace else. Now, it doesn't mean we give up on the carport, but we've got to wait till there's some good soil there. Now, if we throw some seeds out in the driveway, they would grow up quick. I've shared this story with you many times before. When we built our house and we planted the grass, the first grass to grow was the grass that landed in the driveway. 
And it was also the first grass to die. But it was the first grass to grow. And that's what happened. Verse 5, immediately sprang up. Every now and then I run into somebody and they hear about Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be there every Sunday. I'm going to be there every Wednesday. I'm going to get involved with absolutely everything. And they bird out at about three weeks. Growth. Root. You have some that fall in the grassy, weedy area and they get choked out by life. Goes back to that point we said earlier, the killer bees, boring, busy, bothered, beautiful. Just it's a really busy time right now. Life is busy. It's never too busy for Jesus. The last point, the ones that fall on good ground. And look what happens in verse 23. This is the explanation that Jesus gives, Matthew 13, verse 23. Now, that he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, I don't want to get mathematical here, but it sure seems like Jesus is kind of describing everything. 25% of the world is concrete. They are not open to Christ. They, they don't care. They are not open to Christ. They don't care. 25% of the world is the stony soil. They hear it. They're excited. But where are they in a month? 25% of the world are the ones that they just get choked out. You just see it choked out. Life gets them. And then about 25% of the world really get it. I mean, they really get it. Now, you can take that 25% in verse 23 and break it down even more. 100-fold, 60-some, 30. Of that 25%, simple math, only about 8% really live for Christ to the fullest. And you know what? I think that's about the truth. When you look across the world, there's a very small percentage that really look like they're living their life for Jesus with everything. Everything. I heard a pastor say, when I was listening to a study back in the beginning of Acts, where it said they were looking for seven men full of the Holy Spirit. And that pastor said, can you think of seven men full of the Holy Spirit? And he goes, seriously, what would happen if that happened in our church? He said, could we find seven men who were so full of the Holy Spirit that we would stop and say, that person just thinks about Jesus. Wow, what happened to us? What happened to us is just the 21st century. Life, work, kids, busy, summer, everything. Retirement. Heard a great teaching recently about retirement. How this is the goal of every person. Late 20s, early 30s, you start already looking at the day, the year that you can retire. And I hear people say this, 63. Does guy get to 63? Ah, I'm 65. I got to go to 68. You know, 68. Oh, 68. So sorry to hear. And the retirement is this mythical land of retirement. You know, I've met people that are retired. Sometimes they're miserable. And then the pastor went on to say this. Christians don't ever retire. He goes, as a Christian, what are you retiring from? He says, if anything, you should look at retirement as the Lord has now opened up so many doors to do mission work, service, ministry, etc. And he says, as a pastor, he goes, you never retire. He goes, you may reach a point where physical age... Maybe physical limited abilities hinder some of the things that you were able to do. He goes, but when, when do you ever stop and say, I'm done? I'm done. But we have this mindset in America 
Get to the mid-60s, late-60s, and I'm going to reach this mythical age of retirement, and then I'm just going to do whatever I want, however I want, and whenever I want. What, what about the Lord? Now, don't get me wrong. I know some people that say, I can't wait to get done physically working so that way I can go do this for the Lord. Amen to that. But our whole life is supposed to be a hundredfold return on what Christ wants. A growing Christian desires fellowship, shows the world they're saved, preaches boldly, creates more disciples, grows, grows. And what's our last point here? Back to Acts 9, please. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. A growing Christian, verses 23 through 25, accepts difficulties. They accept the fact that the result of boldly proclaiming and growing in Christ, people are not going to like you. We have to accept difficulties as a Christian. We, we just have to. The more Paul preached Christ, the more people got annoyed with him. Now, there's different levels of annoyance. There's the person that you see at work, and they see you, and they don't make eye contact, and they scurry away, because they know that you're going to tell them about Christ at the lunch table. Then there's the person that gets angry. I mean, angry. Then there's the person that gets really angry. That's part of the gig, is we have to accept that there's difficulties in our walk and relationship with Christ. Look at verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Real quick background, verse 26. Can you imagine this? Paul, all of a sudden, is a follower of Jesus, and now he's coming and saying, hey, I want to join the church. And the church is saying, no, I, I, don't, I don't know about this. Is this some ploy? You know, we talked about last week, Saul getting saved. The, the, the best we could think of, the best analogy is be the equivalent of, you know, 10 years ago, someone saying, did you hear Osama bin Laden accepted Christ? I mean, can you imagine some Sunday somebody showing up saying, I'd like you to meet my friend Osama. What? No. Saul tries to show up at the church and be a part of it. The church says... This is fake. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly. There's our word again. Preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarshish. Then the church, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. There will be difficulties in your walk with Christ. I have no idea why, but for some reason we don't hear this preached on enough. Jesus made it abundantly clear in John 15. John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If they hated me, they will hate you. I don't know why we're shocked by that. Jesus said, You will have difficulties in this world. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, I don't know which point you're at with this. Because if you look, there's the verses 23 through 25, where it's tough. But then there's also verse 31, where they were comforted, multiplied, and in peace. This is the up and down of Christianity. There are seasons of life. You came in here this morning, and it was tough. Physically, you're not feeling well. There's problems at home. There's problems at work. It was a struggle to get here. You're in the verses 23 through 25. It's a struggle. But you happen to sit down beside somebody who's at verse 31. 
peace, comfort. And they're kind of ticked at it. Here's the thing. You may be in verses 23 through 25. You may be in verse 31. But God is still the same. He hasn't changed. And I've noticed in my time with the Lord, I have moments of difficulty, and I need to accept that as a growing opportunity. But I also have moments of verse 31 of where it's just a blessing. It's just a blessing. I think I shared this earlier. Maybe it was at the 830 service. You know, there's seven of us in our house. We know when one of us gets sick, it's going to be about two, three weeks. It has to get through everybody. There are difficult times in life. That is, that is a fact. But there are also times of verse 31 of just peace and comfort. Whatever one you're at, Jesus is still the same. Whatever one you're at, you're still called to desire fellowship, show the world, preach boldly, create more disciples, grow. That's a part of Christianity. Don't let the tough times deflate you. Sometimes that's part of your witness to Jesus Christ. Let's bring this all together. A growing Christian desires fellowship. There's strength in the body. There's also conflict in the body. Don't let the killer bees bring you down. A growing Christian wants to show the world they are changed in Christ. A growing Christian wants to preach boldly what the Lord has done for him. A growing Christian desires to create more disciples. A growing Christian grows. Your progress is evident. A growing Christian accepts difficulties. Because that's part of it too. When we look at this, we really see what we're called to be as believers. I think we have to let go of our definition of I'm doing okay spiritually is. Let's compare God's definition of what He desires out of us versus our definition. It doesn't matter if I think I'm doing okay. What does the Lord think? Is He okay with where I'm at spiritually? Marv, if we don't come forward for the final song. As always, I'll be back in the back there to pray.